Uh, I don't know if any of you had an opportunity to look at the books at the back this morning. Um, you'll see some wonderful texts back there. Prosperity now, the only way to go. Um, your best life right now, get it today. No, you should go have a look. That's where you're going to find blessing and richness. And um, <clears throat> yeah, if uh, you're feeling a bit down today, I have got to tell you that God wants the best for you, your life right now today. It better be good, otherwise you don't have enough faith. You know, I'm, I want you guys to know that we need to be preaching and hearing regularly that we are to have blessings in this life. Absolutely, you'll laugh, but don't you believe the blessing? Don't you believe the blessing? Well, I suggest you check out the books. Now, this is why context is so important. If anyone later on listening to this sermon stops as soon as they hear this, and Joel's speaking some heresy, please continue until you hear the context. That, no, we do not believe in the prosperity gospel. We do not believe that your best life is now. In fact, you may have a horrible life now and be completely blessed by God. Completely blessed by God. But there are, unfortunately, false preachers out there in this world that peddle this message that your best life is now, that prosperity is for you, and all other lies along this line. And it's because those sorts of sentiments are what we desire in our heart. We want pleasure in this life. We want to feel comfortable. We want to feel blessed. We certainly, ordinarily, from a worldly perspective, would not want to hear someone encourage us to realize that we will suffer in this life and our suffering might be terrible to the point of desperation. Okay, as we heard that psalm, that was intense. Like death, pit, seal. So many references to death. It certainly wasn't encouraging. You might be tempted to think, oh, what is this? I've had a tough week. I just... I just experienced a week which I hope to forget, and now I'm going to hear a sermon, a sermon that is very similar to last week's sermon, extremely heavy and filled with dark emotions. What is the matter with these people? (laughs) The trouble is, such difficult emotions, they're not pleasant to wrestle with, but we need to wrestle with them, because it's in these dark emotions we realize our utter dependence for God, that we are utterly out of control, realistically. And when those foundations are tested in our lives, which they will be, or perhaps you are already experiencing those testings right now, we need the solid foundation of Christ. We need the solid foundation of God. Otherwise, we will be swept away with the troubles and adversities that we face. And that is why we look at a psalm like Psalm 88. A psalm that paradoxically is one of great uplifting, that has been placed in the Word for moments of suffering that we will experience, that we will go through. So it's from that mindset I want us to look and dig deep into the richness of Psalm 88 and, I guess, surprisingly, find the joy that it can actually bring for us. Um, Let's pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, may your words speak true, as they always speak true. May we be filled with the Spirit's understanding of the reality of life. 
strip away any sort of pretense or fabricated reality that we maybe have constructed this week, thinking that, that somehow we are perhaps not blessed because we're experiencing suffering, or that we are to be experiencing the best in life right now. Strip it away, and may we humbly come before you and receive the joy and hope and grace of living in you, Christ. A grace that says, we are enough because you are enough. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so in today's reading, it wasn't um, placed up on the screen, but there's that original context that um, Joe read, and the original um, part which talks about the purpose of this psalm, why it's been written. And the psalm's notes read that it's it's to be communally sung. Imagine singing that song communally. There'd be tears, you know, just gushing down our faces. But the Bible includes it. It says specifically, to the choir master. I know um, that uh, the song leaders often prep their team on how to sing and what sort of vibe they want. Imagine prepping the team on that. Now hold back your tears as best as you can. Or do they say, let your tears flow for authenticity? I don't know what you'd do. But this is to be sung to the community. The community is to, to sing this song. So clearly, it's something that is meant to edify the community, build the community up. And as we go into this psalm, we're going to see that this psalm is primarily addressed to God. And you'll see the pronoun you as you look through it in more depth in your own time later. You'll notice that you is referenced a lot in this psalm. It's woven throughout the entirety of the psalm. Because despite the initial appearance of the psalm, that it's about one person's struggle in their darkness... It's really a psalm that's pointing us to God and saying, where is God in our darkness? Remember, it's communally sung. The psalm centers on God. And we'll see that this psalm, it wrestles with a dual reality. The the speaker's hope is resting in God, and yet God seems to be the very adversity, the very one presenting a challenge to the psalmist and his understanding of where the light is in all of this darkness. He is wrestling in his affliction from God. And it's important, it's absolutely important we recognize this dynamic, as it gives us insight and hope in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our suffering. Because I don't know about you, but in my moments of struggling with with darkness, and um, I've had some, particularly after year 12, I had a period of, probably undiagnosed depression. It can be discombobulating. It can be disorienting. You don't know where your up is and your down is down. It's just, it's just messy. But if we have a guidance from the Psalms and the many, many other Psalms as well, say Psalm 88, it gives us an anchor in the midst of it all, in the storm of it all. So today, as we look at this psalm, we're not going to have a typical three-point sermon. I'm sorry if you're disappointed. You're going to have to deal with that change. All right? You're going to have to deal with it. Um, interestingly enough, often they say psychologically that change is a, is a bringer, bringer about of depression and um, struggle. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that until now. Um, but be relieved. There is some hope because... There are three cycles in this psalm, I believe. Three cycles, yes. Um, So I will um, explain what those cycles are, and we will see them repeated throughout the psalm. So 
The cycle is this. We're going to have some verses that originally the first part of this cycle is, God, listen. God, listen. That's the first part of the cycle. Then the second part of the cycle is, death is at my doorstep. Death is here. And then we will have, finally in it, failing friendships. Feeling isolated, alone, failing friendships. So they're the cycles. So the first cycle that we're going to be looking at occurs in verses 1 through to 9. The first cycle, 1 through to 9. Remembering that the first part is God listen. The second part, death is at my doorstep. And the final part, failing friendships. So in verses 1, verse 1, we see it's an, an orientation, an anchor to the psalm. It orients us that despite what follows, this psalmist believes that God is his salvation. He says, God is my salvation. It's the foundation from which the psalmist is going to boldly approach God in a desperate way, saying, God, this is where I'm at. I'm struggling here, where he's crying out to God. And he is crying out to God. And he's not just a a crying out a little bit here and a little bit there. No, he is crying out, we read, day and night. This is continual suffering, continual darkness, the pressing weight of no relief. It's an ongoing struggle. And it symbolizes this pressing reality that he is experiencing and that we might experience as well. And he is saying, God, you are my God of salvation and I refuse to run away from you. I refuse to run away from you. He is pressing into that salvation. But there is an earnestness in it because he is incessantly, continuously praying to God, saying, God, I need your help day and night. And this is an important reality for us to recognize. So often in our moments of feeling vulnerable in the darkness, in the desperation, we can actually be tempted to run away from God. We can be tempted to lean into other things that seem to present a form of temporary salvation, but they don't. We can run into drugs. We could run into um, sex. We could run into pursuing our career more, more intensely. We could run into pressing into relationships in an unhealthy way. We could run to bitterness and anger towards God. We could run to many, many things. But we need to remember the anchoring of this psalm. That God is his salvation. And he pleads to God. He says, God, listen, because you are my salvation. So cry out day and night before God. Be in persistent prayer. And I guess the good foundation for persistent prayer in the hard times is to consistent prayer in the good times, which is a rebuke to me as well. Because our life is dependent upon God's deliverance. Now, we're not told how long this suffering has endured. But what we do know is that he is positioning God for relief. He is asking God. He is desperate to be heard from the God who is his salvation. And it's in these moments of our plight that we need to remember that God will meet us. But it may not be in the time frame 
that we might expect or hope. And this is the reality for the psalmist. He's saying, I am desperate for you. God, you are my salvation. But we will see that this salvation at the very end of the psalm doesn't come. But it's also a comforting reminder to us that we don't have to be stoic. We don't have to have this stiff upper lip sort of expression to our lives. We don't have to be smiling all of the time, the smiling fatigue. We don't have to be like the advertisements, always smiling. We can come to God in the rawness of the vulnerability of our darkness. It has been placed here in the Bible. Therefore, it is authoritative. Therefore, it is instructive. Therefore, it is good. Um, and um, this psalm is, is also a reminder that we're not to necessarily run, uh, we're not to necessarily pursue fixes quickly. We are to sit in the emotion, the uncomfortability. We're to sit in the negative experience instead of suffering with the hope of quickly getting relief. Growth is in the suffering too. And it paradoxically is an opportunity to actually rejoice that God is refining your character. God is refining your character in suffering. Well, yes, this is true because Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5 reads this. Not only that, but we rejoice, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing this is why we rejoice, that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Who has been given to us. Suffering. Rejoicing in suffering, knowing that it produces so much. Produces endurance, character, and hope. In hope. We also need to be aware that when we are counseling others who are going through dark time, not to rush them through the experience. Maybe God is giving this, them this moment of deep suffering and darkness to have these elements refined in them. Endurance, character, and hope. Practice, as hard as I know it can be at times, the skill of empathetic listening, of sitting there in their dust and ashes, crying with them, hearing them. Because we do not know what the sovereign plans of God are. His ways are higher than our ways. And the sovereign Lord will not leave his own to be forsaken. We also read in Romans that all things work for the good of those that love him. Not some things, all things. All things work for the good of those that love him. So let God do his thing. Which leads us to the next section of this first cycle. Death is at my doorstep. The psalmist is in his despair deeply concerned about his soul's, soul's plight. And he feels death so close. He says, for my soul is full of troubles in verse 3. My soul is full of troubles. And his strength has failed him. He says, I have no strength. He understands the desperation of his situation. He feels close to death. And we read a string of, of, um, 
of adjective descriptions of his experience. He says, my life draws near to Sheol. Go down to the pit, among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Depths of the pit. Now, we see a lot of different descriptive um, names for death in this psalm. We've got Sheol, we've got abdomen, we've got pit, uh, we've got among the dead. So, synonyms to describe death. That enemy that has been of humanity since the fall. And he says to God... My soul is full of troubles. I'm close to death. Close to death. And one terrifying image that we see in this section when you read it is that this image of drowning. And we see also later on in the psalm, he feels held under by his troubles. Now, I don't, hopefully, none of you have experienced drowning in any way. Um, the closest I've come is had a really severe asthma attack. This was when I was at Bible college, and um, I had gone out with a mate to a Bucks party, and I'd actually, bef- beforehand, and it was um, holidays, college holidays, I'd been doing some part-time work, and I was sanding down in this house, like fixing up some, yeah, house, whatever. And <laughs> 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 it was stupid, I didn't wear a mask, and I should have, yeah, I shouldn't have been so foolish. So I had that during the day, and then at the Bucks, they had a, a roast on a spit, and smoke, I was inhaling it, and um, I said to my mate, because we'd carpool, I said, look, I've got to go, I'm, I'm struggling to breathe here. And on the way home, I just felt like I was breathing through a straw. And I remember sitting in the car seat, like just pressing back, and I was, I was envisioning, I was literally envisioning dying. And what that would be like. And kind of like, okay, I guess this might be it. So my friend is rushing through red lights. We're trying to go to pharmacists. And we're trying, they're all closed. Because by the time we were looking at it, they're all closed. And I don't know how many we went to. <laughs> Later on when I was sharing this story with James, she's like, you could have just gone to ED. I was like, no. <laughs> Here I am dying and didn't even think of that. Well, you're not thinking straight, okay? <laughs> anyway, to be breathing through a straw. So envision breathing through a straw. It is a terrifying feeling. And I've heard drowning is a, is a very, very similar, terrifying experience. Um, to Lake, it's talking about how you can see an expression in someone's face when they're about to drown. There's a change, and there's this terrified look in the eyes. And we it's just picture that with this psalmist. He feels overwhelmed. In verse 7, he says, you have overwhelmed me with your waves. And elsewhere in the psalm, verse 16, he says, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Wave after wave after wave of trouble is hitting him, perhaps internal, perhaps external. We're not told, perhaps both. But it's just swamping him, swamping him, and he doesn't know how he's going to press through. Surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together, pressed in constricting. He feels the entanglement of death snapping at his heels. And what is worse, the final section in this first cycle, is his friends have abandoned him. This is a time you need, mates. This is a time you need friends to pick you up. But no, they have abandoned him. And they have left him to the mercy of his circumstances. And we read in verse 8, they actually consider him a horror. One translation says, an abomination. 
May this never be the case in our church. May we rally around those of us who are suffering. May we pull together, tethering ourselves to that person who is struggling, letting them unburden their souls and tangibly experiencing the gospel through community. May this be our reality, our continued reality, until that valley experience has passed, no matter how long that is. I'm encouraged with how we have rallied around some people in our church with chronic illness. And despite many, many times of, of feeling in their vulnerability, I'm sure it must have been challenging for them to think, how can we ask people at our church to help again? How can we help them? How can we ask them to help us with moving again? Or how can we ask them to help us with simple things such as cleaning? But we have been blessed by these brothers and sisters too. And I'm so proud of us that we have stepped up. And we are doing that. No matter how long their valley experience is. Which leads us to our second cycle. Now I think the psalm is written in this cyclic way. Because so often in the messiness, in the trouble, the entanglement of desperation. There are cycles. Reminded of... God's salvation, but then drawn back into the emotion, sucked back into the reality of the darkness and the reality of friends leaving you. So I think the next cycle is in verses 9b to 12. And remember the cycle is as such. God, listen. Death is at my doorstep and my friends are failing me, failing friendship. Despite the complete sense of abandonment of his friends, the psalmist remains faithful in his sorrow. He transcends his emotions. He doesn't look to the reality of the plane in which he lives. He lifts his eyes to the heavenly reality. He says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. I spread out my hands to you. Almost wanting to grasp at God. God, listen. And you can really hear the desperation with four rhetorical questions that are placed together in this section. Four rhetorical questions. Now, they're hyperbolic in nature. They're exaggerated. But so often in these moments, our emotions are exaggerated. And this gives us permission. Gives us permission because we see that these are the notes of the choir master. Therefore, the congregation is to be singing this psalm. Also, it would be inappropriate to encourage them to worship with disrespectful words. And we also see that the psalmist is relying upon God through his desperate petitions. This is prescriptive. I don't think it's descriptive. I think we are to emulate this. He pleads out to God. Four rhetorical questions, feeling so close to the grave. And one commentator says this, this is the enigma that permeates the texture of this psalm. This is the enigma, the mystery that permeates the texture of this psalm. Why should the God who desires to save and receive praise deny deliverance to the speaker? Why should the God who desires to save and receive praise deny the deliverance of the speaker? That's a really good question. 
Why? If God desires our praise, which he does, why does he allow us to go through these moments? It can only be, as Romans talks about, the, de- the, de- the development of character and the fact that all things work together for the good of those who love him and for his glory. But that doesn't mean that we can't have that question in our heart as expressed through the four rhetorical question of the psalmists. God, if you want, if you, if you want praise, save me. What is going on? He is questioning God out of a sincerity of his heart, an earnest pressing into God, not a leaning away, pressing into God in respect, pressing into God. He is not asking these questions out of disrespect like the Israelites who questioned God for 40 years. And as Psalms 95, 10 says, for 40 years I loathe that generation. Said, They are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. But here... The petition that the psalmist says strikes true because he knows God. We have these at each beginning cycle. He knows God. God is the God of his salvation. God is the God of salvation. I call upon you, God, O God. I spread out my hands to you. He is a follower of God. This petition that he says is respectable. It is honorable. It is good because he is wrestling with his God. He is not wrestling against God. He is wrestling with God. Isn't this amazing that we can wrestle with God? We can have such a real relationship with God that we can wrestle with Him? The sovereign God who spun the galaxies into existence, billions and billions of stars, who made this planet so perfectly fine-tuned that we can exist on this space allows us, mere humans, no greater than the grass of the field that withers, to wrestle with him. That is an amazing thing. But the petition, he comes to God and he says, God, I need you. God, I need you. Then we see the final cycle. Verses 13 to 18. Remember the cycle? God, listen to me. Verses 13 to 14. Verses 3 to 7 and 10 to 12. Sorry, 10 to 12. Death is at my doorstep. And then failing friendships. And I am being destroyed. I am being destroyed in all of it. So the final cycle. God, listen. Death is at my doorstep. Failing friendships. Verses uh, 13 to 18, sorry. He cries out, verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. That contrastive word is so important. But, despite how he feels, despite the reality of his emotional experience, he transcends it and he says, But I will cry to you. He is genuinely struggling and he's bringing himself to God. And he's bringing himself to God. He is genuinely struggling. He is genuinely pouring his heart out to God. But he is crying out in dependence upon God. And that is why elsewhere in the Psalms, the Psalms are so useful. They're such a useful resource to draw upon in our moments of joy. Well, any any range of emotion. Um, Sadness, grief, betrayal, whatever. 
is they contain the rawness of our emotions. And, and this, this call is echoed in, say, Psalm such 121, verse 2. Help comes from the Lord. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Undeniably, the psalmist is struggling to understand, as we see in verse 14 with the two uh, rhetorical questions. But his questions also imply dependence upon the Lord. Sometimes we're left in this darkness and God, we think, God, why? You, don't you want to be praised? But God remains silent. The heavens feel like iron shut against us. And pain sometimes feels so much more bearable when you know the why. When you know the why. It's hard to wait for a silent God to speak. Really hard to wait. I know, as I mentioned before, I suffered from undiagnosed depression. That went on for about, I'd say, two years, and then it abated a bit. And it came back later on in life. And by God's goodness, he did give me relief. Um, I did need some medicinal assistance with that. Um, But God, in his goodness, he did give me relief. But I remember crying out during that time, you know, where are you, God? Why? I felt like I was hanging from a rope, suspended in darkness, just hanging on by one arm. I was like, I am not letting go. But that's the wrong statement. God's not letting go. That rope is wrapped around my arm. That rope is wrapped around your arm in those moments of darkness. He will not let you go. He will not forsake you. Now, this is a challenge in chronic, long-term suffering, undeniably. Because the reality of pain feels like the clouds that block the sun. And by all intents and purposes and appearance, those clouds are there. That's all you can see. That is a reality. But you go beyond that. The sun is still there. The sun is consistently shining behind those clouds. And your experience might be those clouds at the moment. You're living in the darkness of the shadow of death, living in the darkness of the shadow of chronic illness, whatever that may be, or whatever it may become. I hope it isn't a prophetic sermon, but it could be. The reality of the sun is there and it will eventually pierce through the clouds and illuminate that light on you. That is why he says in verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer terrors, I am helpless. He is in the moment of deep, deep storm and he feels overcome. But he has anchored himself to the sun. And there's this hopelessness that almost resonates, you know, uh, this hopelessness that kind of comes through at this point. You know, is there any hope in this land of the living? Now, this is the hard reality that we don't have to experience, thankfully, in this country. But it's important, I was thinking about this. It's important we recognize this reality for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been thinking throughout the week about this idea of partnership and how, as churches, we are actually connected. We're referred to in the, in the Bible as one body. And if one part of the body, Paul talks about, suffers, then all of the body suffers. Now, I think he's also referring to the local church as well. But if we broadly take that out to the, the universal church, Christians around the world, there are faithful brothers and sisters who this psalm will resonate so deeply 
Am I going to see hope in this land of the living? North Korea, Iran, and the list goes on of countries where brothers and sisters in Christ are locked up. Some of them can't literally see the sun, but they see the sun. It reminds us of Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 um, and 11, where the saints are calling out to God. They cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This psalm, I think, ends the way that it does in a sense to give hope to those brothers and sisters who are left in that darkness and they may not see God in the land of the living. The persecuted church, those that are the saints who will be killed as those saints waiting in heaven, waiting for their blood to be avenged. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries. We need to pray for them. As one part of the body suffers, all of the body suffers. We should have simultaneously joy at all times. And a somewhat melancholy spirit. Recognizing that this isn't our permanent home. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are bound for pain because we're not citizens here. We don't have the rights of the citizens of this world because we have the rights of the citizen of heaven. Better even though it doesn't look like it sometimes. Actually, often it doesn't. We will suffer. And our, our society, our country of Australia is becoming progressively more antagonistic towards Christians. Who knows? We might experience this at some point. But we have Psalm 88 to draw on. And that is why I think this psalm ends at this point. Rather than a traditional resolution of hope, there's no sort of refrain that says, but God, you are the greatest, you will deliver me at some point. Or some other encouraging word. It ends in this point of suffering that is messy and complicated and hurtful and suspended. I don't know about you, but being in a suspended space can be one of the most torturous spaces to be in. Suspended. God's placed this psalm in the Bible to give permission to, to guide us in our moments of soul-splitting suffering. This is because verse 19 is yet to be written in the reality of this psalmist. And yet to be written in many times in our suffering. The darkness that surrounds the psalmist is reflected of the suspended state of being in which he's in. His emotions, his circumstances. He might, verse 19... Verse 19, which is not there, but I'm saying it's yet to be written in this psalmist's life, may be the morn of deliverance, where the sun pierces through and he sees hope. Or it may be that he is a saint who is slain and will receive the, the hope of the new creation. This is why I think it ends at this point. Now I'm going to invite up um, some talented musicians to give us a picture of this psalm to perhaps display some of the intensity of the emotion through song.
And I want us to just reflect and look at the lyrics as they come up on the screen. Reflect upon this psalm uh, as it is sung.
not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Christ Jesus, the one who was abandoned by his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane, who cried tears, who pleaded with his Father, God, take me out of this darkness. Take me out of this darkness. But he said, not my will, but yours. The one who hung was suspended on that cross where darkness did cover the sun. The one who took your sin, your brokenness, so that you could even have hope in the land of the living and the land next. He is the one who is your great high priest. He is the one who we read has been tempted in every respect, yet without sin, that we can draw confidence near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of our need. Christ experienced the darkness of the grave. But the anxiety, the fear that consumes the psalmist, so many verses of Psalm 88 which talk about death, are overcome by Christ. Death, where is your sting? There is no sting anymore because it's gone. Jesus has taken it. He has destroyed death. And that is why, like with the psalmist, we can praise God. We can praise God through Jesus Christ. That is the truth. I'm excited because this is the truth. We just got to believe it. We've got to walk it. We've got to talk it. We need to believe that gospel ourselves. Remember our high priest, 